Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to Tim Smeaton and Simon Walker, managing partners of Kubrick Group, the award-winning data, AI, and cloud consultancy, which exists to solve the digital skills emergency by building a diverse workforce designed to help organizations evolve and embrace next-generation technology. If you are a regular listener to the show, you may remember that Tim and Simon first appeared on Climbing Consulting all the way back at episode 16, almost three years ago. Since then, Kubrick has grown dramatically, going from 100 consultants when we last spoke to over 600 today. On the way, they have built out multiple new offerings and won a whole host of awards in recognition of their growth, their commitment to diversity and inclusion, and the service they provide to their clients. Having watched their journey over the last three years, I was so keen to get Tim and Simon back on the show to share their secrets behind this phenomenal growth. In today's conversation, we go into a whole range of topics that I know are going to help you grow your consulting firm. We talk about how Kubrick Group has been able to scale so quickly in such a short amount of time and the secrets that have helped Simon and Tim achieve that success. The unique approach 
that Kubrick Group has taken to identifying what their clients really need, what they should be selling to them, and when the time is right to launch a new practice area, and how Tim and Simon's approach to leadership has had to evolve as the business has grown. It was great to speak with Tim and Simon again. This conversation was as fun as it was insightful, and I know you are going to really enjoy it. We laughed a lot, and they shared so much great advice along the way. If you are looking to learn how you can grow your own consulting business or practice area, or maybe you want to know about how you can approach building out your new offering, you are going to get a ton from this one. So with the intro over, the build-up done, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Tim Smeaton and Simon Walker. Tim Simon, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I think, I, I don't know if we've got a name for the sequel, The Return of the Kubrick Group. Uh, well, I don't think we went away, did we? <laughs> 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 well, well yeah, I mean, you, you say that actually. I know, you know, I know we've been talking, so yeah, we we keep in touch. And it, it sounds like the interview hasn't gone away. You know, it sounds like you're getting a lot of attention from from fans of all sorts. So, I mean, how has it been since we caught up three years ago? What's the what's the impact of the podcast been? Well, I would say it's been the sole reason why we've done so well over the last three years, Nick. Probably <laughs> when we won the fastest growing consultancy in Europe from the Financial Times, they stated it was because of the podcast. Guys, we can finish there. That, that is the quote of the episode. That's going firmly on our uh, our LinkedIn tomorrow. I was hoping for something a little more serious. Has it been you? And I, I, I say that jokingly, just because I always I always get asked by people. Actually, what's the point? Does it help anyone? I'm just curious. It's, it's been really useful to um, get people to understand the journey that we well we were on back then. Um, definitely with people that potentially might be interested in joining us. And things like that it gives them gives them a, an insight that they wouldn't be able to have otherwise i think yeah it's been mentioned to us hasn't it yeah i think quite honestly more than any other podcast we've done the last three years <laughs> i don't think you've done any others have you? that is very true <laughs> <laughs> right guys it's going to be one of those interviews okay well look let's uh let's jump to you guys there tonight I think obviously, you know, I want this to be very much, and I know, you know, to help you as well, want it to be a, a part two, not a rehash of, of part one. So anyone who's listening to this, if they haven't already listened, uh, can go back to part one. So why don't we actually start with, we caught up three years ago, you were a hundred people, you were based by, you know, Wapping, where I used to live, sort of tobacco dock. Things have changed a little. Do you want to give, you know, for our listeners an overview of what's happened in that time? Yeah, well, a lot, ultimately, I think. I remember when we first met, really, we were in a position where we'd sort of validated our business model, I think, is is how I would sort of summarize that point in time. So what we've done is we've, we've built upon our model, and that's meant diversifying the types of people we've got and the type of people we've trained, winning more clients and building the clients we've got, and all of those sorts of processes and systems improvements that you need to make when you're a, a growing company and so to sort of put on top of all of that we've also had to sort of build our own capability internally for all of our own staff and leaders uh, that we've got within the business so it's been a really exciting time with a really interesting backdrop you know taking the human pain and suffering away from covid and and you know in no way am i sort of dismissing that but but from a sort of commercial point of view covid was a really good test for us as a business because ultimately it was testing two things in my mind one was the value of our consultants so you know were they retained during that period 
or were they handed back? And I'm pleased to say actually very few of them, apart from a few companies that were really caught by COVID, like travel companies, for example, uh, were handed back. So it showed how resilient we were. And the second thing it did was it actually showed how capable we were as a business to react to a very sudden change. So, you know, when I, if someone said to me, what are you kind of most proud of? Uh, over the last three years, I'd probably say actually how everybody within the organization, without any form of exception, reacted when, you know, COVID hit us. And I'm sure many of them were facing all sorts of personal or family related issues. But it just amazed me how quickly we, one day we were here in the office and um, talking about, you know, modeling out, because we're a data company, we modeled out what we thought would happen, obviously. And then two days later, everyone was working from home and the business was running, you know, as smoothly as it as it was before. So, you know, it's been a phenomenal three years. We've grown like Billy O. Up to about 650 staff now, 80 clients roughly, and great NPS score with our clients, haven't we, Simon? Yeah, and, um, and yeah, it's been it's it's really good. It's it's a good model and, and we're um credit to everyone here. We're executing it effectively and to a and to a high standard, yeah. I think. Well, I think that's a great story and we're going to dig into all of that because, you know, partly for my own business, but for my listeners as well, I, I want to be a bit nosy and understand the secret source of as much of it as you'll give. Maybe just starting where, where you talked about there too, about actually that transition overnight and maybe start with how you were able to do that because 650 people is not easy to suddenly turn remote or, yeah. or was it? How, how did you, you know, how did you do that so quickly? Well, I think the very first thing you have to do, if you think about managing people, one of the things that Simon and I experienced a lot in our last business was learning about how people go through the change curve. So if I look back at it, there was a point in time, I can't remember the exact date, early March, where we thought, you know, we've seen recessions before. We don't know the exact shape of this one, but ultimately it's going to follow a similar path, which is that our clients are going to go into a state of shock. They're then going to kind of work out what's happening. And then they're going to try and build some resilience into their business, and then they'll go into a mode of recovery. So what we did being a data business, as I've mentioned, is we sort of modeled out if our clients behaved in that way for a certain length of time, what would that mean to us as an organization? And once we'd done that and we stood up in front of the entire business and said, look, this is what we think is going to happen. We think you know it's going to go very quiet very quickly for a period of time and, and, and things of this nature. But this is how we're going to react to it, and this is what we're going to do. And providing we're carrying along this path – then you know everything's going to be fine, et cetera, et cetera. The feedback I received uh, personally from a lot of people after that was they felt very reassured that we were looking at the problem face on and we were prepared to do something about it. So, so I think that was the hardest point in time was the early recognition that there was a train coming down the tracks that was about to hit us. You know, And um, it doesn't matter what research you do where, it will all say pretty much the same thing, which is that how companies react during a recession and the earlier they react defines the growth rate out of the recovery. And that was kind of the, the, the line we took. Once that was in place, then we just put people into teams and, and they went and worked on how can their department effectively deal with the oncoming train crash uh, analogy I've used twice now, but I mean, basically, you know, how can they do that? And we just mobilized very quickly and we dealt with it in that way. And, you know, we, we had to deal with some bench. About 7% of our consultants were handed back, as I mentioned earlier. So we had to have a sort of, you know, one of the challenges we had, didn't we, was we had to have a sort of virtual bench. And suddenly we had to, you know, have virtual stand-ups. And we were giving project work to our bench that we wouldn't normally have to do because we had about 40 people on the bench. I mean, that bench only lasted about two months, didn't it? Do you, I mean, what about from a client's perspective? Yeah, from a client's perspective, I thought the way you described it as a 
as they go through the change curve. You know, the the initial reaction that we saw when 7% of our um, consultants were given back, that initial shock of them having to kind of batten down the hatches, any external people, some of them took the approach of they had to stop that spend. And And what was interesting was as they, obviously a lot of them then work remotely, you know, through Teams or Zoom or whatever, suddenly the importance of digitizing their business came to a realization for them. And actually, we saw very quickly, I mean, it might have even been less than two months, we saw that bench dissipate and go back into clients as they were able to prioritize what their spend was and where they would get the biggest return, which ultimately was all about digitizing their business. And you've mentioned there about you know, 7%. In some ways, obviously, that's a big bench, but actually, that's really good in a you know recession like we've just had. Actually, what did you have to do on the client side? You know, Tim, you mentioned that that sort of recession, there's a panic phase. And as we all know, external resource will go out the door. And particularly, and maybe an assumption of mine, you get rid of the most junior people first because the senior people have, you know, can do other things. How did you reassure clients around that time so that they kept your team on and kept the consultants that they had and didn't give more back? Well, depending on what type of client it is, they'd, I mean, I think a lot of them had already made up their own mind. And they are often driven by a sort of matrix-led approach, if you like, where they'll, they'll sort of have the quadrants on there of a value or cost versus kind of strategic need or necessity. You know, so what always goes first in the face of recession is any labor or temporary labor via consultants or contractors that sits in the you know, not so important projects and they're, and they're expensive people. So, so we don't fall into that. So I think we were fortunate because of our focus we sat in the high value, most important quadrant in the top right. So actually, we didn't really need to manage our clients that much. They just actually retained them because they knew that cloud adoption, digitization, and the availability of data, particularly when they were facing the need to make some pretty difficult decisions pretty quickly with a bunch of data that they've never really looked at before, I think that was ultimately the root cause of our resilience. And then we had a few clients, didn't we, I think, where they they reacted in a very snap judge way and then um, about two weeks later, they asked them back again. So I suppose that <laughs> emphasizes the point more. Yeah, that was all right. That was all right. There was definitely some that just went, right, all external spend. And then they went through the process that Tim has outlined where they realized that actually that those people, those Kubrick individuals are in the areas that require investment. And, you know, that's where the world's heading. Let's come on to, and I know Simon, we, we've talked about this a few times, is it, as a marketing consultancy, we, we regularly look at our Google Analytics and you guys are... You know, the Kubrick business model is still one of the, the top search for terms that gets to our website. So a lot of people obviously want to know about it. Now, I don't want to, to rehash fully what we talked about last time, because I think, you know, you explained the model really well there. But I'm interested in how that model's evolved, because I think something I read, I think it was an interview you did, Tim, is you're now working across four different sort of practice areas or pathways, as you call them. And I'd love to understand from the two of you almost how you have broadened out from just data, if I'm, I'm phrasing it correctly, and then almost how you decided it was the right time to do that and how you've gone about it to broaden out that offering. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> we'll both look to each other in the eyes there for people listening. Uh, it was emotional. Yeah, lots of eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Puppy dog eyes. So, um, wow. wow. <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, we really haven't strayed outside of data. What we've done is we've just grown within the data ecosystem in terms of the types of roles that have, have existed. I mean, I'm Simon, I'm sure I'll sort of give you, the, can give you the history of why each one came along at any point in time. But um, 
really when you're growing any organization let alone a people-based one you know there's there's lots of different ways you can expand you can expand geographically you can expand by discipline so for any people you know who are building their own consultancies that's exactly what they'll be thinking about how do how do i expand so my only thing i would say is it sounds like we've expanded a lot or diversified a lot but really it isn't because it's just the next door neighbor to what we were already doing so you know we are still have a very sharp arrowhead into the world of data and having more practices as as you said just allows us to offer a more complete service offering to the clients that we've got we have though to simon's credit and the guys that work with him had a bit of a knack of calling it before the market does. I mean, I don't. I mean, what, which practice do you think we've called? Well, I, I think when we very first started, when when we first set up, everyone was telling us set up in data science. But what they were saying and what they, we were hearing were two very different things. They were saying data science is what they need, but actually, the foundation and the platform in which they wanted to provide analysis off wasn't in a good enough shape. And what we were hearing was that they had these multiple flows of data coming in. Uh, they needed to standardize them before they could analyze them. So there was no point getting a data scientist. So we took the leap based on what we were hearing to set up data engineering. And I think we were a bit ahead. If you looked at all the um, job markets at the time, data science was very much upfront. Data engineering was, was just beginning, really. So, And then it, it kind of followed with data management as well. So I think the analogy of, of it being a, a next-door neighbour is very good. You know, they suddenly put the platform together where all their data was in a good enough position where they could then provide analysis from that. Suddenly they realise, actually, we've got all the data flows in the right place. It's All the plumbing of the data is um, is fixed, but actually the quality of data, the data management, the data governance wasn't good enough to give them the results they needed. So we went into data management. We took a slightly different approach to that because... Data management traditionally had been uh, far more about policy making and aligned with the business. And we thought, well, actually, we wanted to give them a technical skill set so they could be more effective and they could be more productive in that role. So, yeah, we were we were ahead with with data management as well. You mentioned there about how you you were listening to what the clients in the market said. And I know, you know we talked about the origin story last time about how that was what you did, you know, step one. But I'm really interested... How did you or how do you do that? And almost what is the bar for you to commit to investing in another practice? Because I'm sure with each of these sort of new areas, there comes training costs, you know, you've got to get new cohorts in there. There's quite an investment. So you're actually, you are placing quite a big bet. How do you decide when something is of the size where, yes, actually we should create a new pathway versus our oh, client X has said that, but client X always says that. How do you, how do you decide that? Well, I think you've got different data. I mean, how we originally decided it and how we decide it now are two very different things, I think, you know, because that's another point in the last three years. You Your processes grow internally, and I think also you become a lot more stringent in your decision-making and the evidence that you require. So, so how we do it now is we do exactly what Simon says. We run, you know, sort of focus groups with clients, strategy days with clients, and that gives you one perspective. And, you know, some of the client relationships that someone can tell you about later, you know, we're involved in their strategy days and we're looking at the next year ahead or 18 months. But that's just one view of the market, isn't it? You know, they like uh, to understand what other technology startups there are. So that's maybe somewhere to look as well. You know, who are the companies in America that are getting silly NASDAQ 
valuations. There's, there's a good idea of, of where the data market's going. You know, no we're one going into crypto us. next. Is it well, that? I mean, yeah, I'm not going there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think from a data perspective, you know, you can see things on the horizon. And then I think you've got a lot of analysis, sort of top down analysis that is actually free to access. Yeah. And if you can put some resource into that, you can see some themes emerging from Gartner or, you know, any of the Boston Consulting Group or Bain on people like this, who are saying that this is the way we want to go. And, and they make all that material readily available. So, you know, you've got some qualitative and quantitative and client-based feedback. And where the three intercept one another, you know, you're, it's probably your best bet, isn't it? I mean, and from a business modeling perspective, when do we decide to invest in a new area? Well, I mean, that's, that's a different question. That's about company growth, risk profile, because you write huge working capital requirement to do what we do. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely been like that. It was, it was a bit more, ha- I mean, it's a bit more haphazard at the start. Potentially. Yeah, I would say we've, we've just launched machine learning engineering. And I would say how we launched that compared to maybe data engineering and data management is exactly the way Tim said, our, our processes are um, somewhat matured in terms of how we go through that. But we also have we have a really really good technology partnerships that we can also access. So we're a, a Microsoft Gold partner, and they have some incredible research in terms of what they're developing, and and you know their finger on the pulse, and and the the research budget they have is is obviously quite exceptional. So tapping into that gives you a very valuable source of info. And actually, the machine learning engineering one was an interesting one because as they expanded into cloud, and the data science teams were pushing out algorithms and things like that their customers and their clients were looking for efficiencies in the cloud because it was costing them a lot of money and that's where really the birth of machine learning engineering came from and that's why we realized when we then checked it in the focus groups with our clients and had strategy days with them we realized that was quite a considerable need for them so i'm keen to hold on this and very much you know as much for for myself as for my listeners because I think consulting as an industry, we, we very often fall foul of thinking we know best. And so I think it's great. So my clients will buy it. And I think what you've said and done so successfully is, is the opposite approach. You've said, what do your clients want and, and gone sort of gone and given it to them? I'd love to just with that machine learning piece, really just go step by step. So to my understanding, you've done the research, you've said this is a hot topic, Microsoft is sort of saying, and then you run a focus group to validate it. Is that right? Yeah. So we have different client portfolios of different sizes in different industries. So it's important that we don't just go to the very largest or just do a focus group with the smallest. So we have a cross range of clients pre-COVID that was done in person and the clients would love that and I, and they would get together and they would network themselves. Um, and I hope to get back to that. During COVID, what we did, we just simply put that online and, and actually we would have set objectives that we'd like to come out with, ask some questions based on what we think might be happening and get their advice. And then with some of the strategic accounts that we would have, we would actually have a single strategy day with them to talk about what are they doing in the next 12 to 18 months? What does that landscape look like? Where are their biggest pinch points? Where are they putting aside budgets? What new technologies are they investing in? And all of those data points would start leading you towards, you know, launching machine learning engineering or you know, whatever it might be next. So the approach sounds really good. My question is, how do you get clients to that place? Because, you know, I, I know a lot of consulting firms where they have great relationships with their clients, but I think the idea of saying, will you come in for a focus group and give us an hour of your time or a day of your time, either they, they think or their clients will say, no, thanks. How do you get your clients on board for this? Well, I mean, um, we've definitely experimented, so we haven't got it right every time. So 
you know, some tips I think are for what doesn't work is, you know, presentations. Come to this seminar and we'll present to you about this new thing that's, you know, they're just inundated with invitations like that. And I think if they're interested in a topic, most people these days, there's so much information available at your fingertips that you just readily go and get it. You don't need to sort of be invited to a, an expert to, to, to learn about something. So that definitely hasn't worked for us. And I think the, one of the golden tickets that Simon and his team caught on to, if I remember correctly, was the realization that if you just had one person from every industry sector in a room, then they felt able and free enough to talk about things that perhaps they wouldn't want to talk to their competitor about. So if we had, for sake of convenience, a pharmaceutical company sitting next to a supermarket, sitting next to an investment bank, sitting next to a car dealership, car manufacturer, sorry, then, you know, they were pretty much like, oh, quite enjoying this. And our job was to facilitate lots of conversation going on in the room and interject the questions we wanted knowing well that what they were getting from it as well was just hearing each other from other industry sectors answer the answer the questions so you you can't be selfish in your questions you know asking them what questions they like the answers to as well is helpful <laughs> so so my right in inferring you know, while you obviously internally call it a focus group it's actually part of this is that positioning outside it's not you know you're not positioning this as come and tell us what you want so you can give it to us it's it's much more of a networking style yeah, event I, that's right i think there's two things i think that they gain a network that they wouldn't have been able to get before. And within that network, they get ideas and they hear from people that aren't competitors, as Tim rightly said, about what they're doing. So it's interesting from their own career and, and their own profession. And I think secondly, that the clients that have been with us for some time and, and, and know us know that they will have input and influence on what we do next. So actually, if they do have a, a challenge that they can see coming up in a year, then they know that Kubrick you know, is likely to listen to that and could provide a solution that will be very valuable to them in that in that year to help them overcome that challenge. I do think it's worth adding that how your clients perceive you will dictate, you know, what, what they're prepared to do with you. And that sounds very obvious, but if you're driving your brand to be perceived as an absolute expert in one particular thing, then clearly the only time you can really draw them to your brand is when they want to learn something about the one thing you're an expert in, which might be, you know, that one, one thing. So we, we have a much greater purpose at Kubrick Group. You know, we exist to help solve the UK's digital skills emergency that is holding back so many of our clients from addressing their business needs and keeping up with all these new competitors that are springing up, you know, you know, Monzo Bank frightens the life out of the retail banks, doesn't it? You know, or, and, there's, and there's, this is happening across every single sector. So because they understand our purpose very clearly, it's of value to them to spend time with us because, because we have a shared uh, goal that we're trying to achieve. So if, if you're a consulting firm, you don't have a shared goal with your client and your goal is uh, we're just experts in something. I, I don't see quite why that would draw me in as much as saying, you know, a goal like we've got at Kubrick Group. Because ultimately, you know, if we if we listen to our clients and they tell us something really interesting about what's going to hold them back, and we build a workforce that they can draw upon, and we make that risk and, and commitment to investment, which you've rightly said is significant, that's a win-win for everyone. <laughs> it's a win for the clients to get the right people, and it's a win for us because we don't lose a load of money training up a load of people <laughs> in a load of skills that are irrelevant. So, <laughs> so you know, you've got to have a shared win, really, and you've got to be really explicit about that because um, – you can't just imply it to people. So I think we've we've definitely got a lot better over the last few years of being a little bit more confident to say, look, this is actually the problem we're fixing. And that, I think that's really drawn people in. And because we've got a higher sense of purpose, you know, organizations with a higher sense of purpose always 
you know, do draw their customers in more. You can read that everywhere. So I think that's, I mean, we're on a journey, right? So this, like we're stage one of this, what I'm describing. We haven't reached it yet. <laughs> yeah, we are, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, you've, you've learned a lot since we uh, last talk, I'm, talked, I'm sure. So I'm just, it's fascinating to hear. And I want to come back to that client segmentation piece you, know, you mentioned, Simon, and, and how you do these groups, because I'm sure, I know, you know we've touched a lot on how you're, the sales side of your business, I think is really strong and something that I'm sure others can learn from. I think one question for me, to your point, I guess, to run the cost of investing in these programs is again, you know, when I look at some other consultancies, they will operate in a, an industry area and actually either because they're fearful of excluding customers or simply because they've been offered a new project will kind of just blur the lines of their specialism. So take what you do here at Cubic Group, data science is, is quite a broad church. You've deliberately, you know, to what you were saying there, so delineated your sort of different programs and pathways. I'd just be interested why you decided that was the right approach, why you, you decided actually we need to delineate these and not just say, you know, we've got one program, but yes, we can do data management, data analysis, data governance. Well, I'm, I think scalability, because we can't train all the people on all the stuff, otherwise it would take too long. So, I mean, another way of looking at it or another way of mentioning it is if you look around at some of the high growth consult technology consulting firms at the moment, you'll see that they're really good at building squads. You know, and they've got a balance of skill sets within that squad that works for framework. So I think the same applies to us, that we wanted to build these different practice lines so that when a client came to us, they could build their own squad in the formation that they wanted. And of course, it's a natural evolution for us now to be able to say to clients, well, actually, we'll give you a squad now, you know, so we, which we couldn't do before. So I think from a, a positioning perspective, it was really important. And then from a, a scaling perspective, Quite simply, we are limited to 15 weeks training. Our financial model is is ultimately really that we, you know, we carry all the risk. So I wouldn't want to stretch the training any longer than that. And frankly, we'd end up being a place of education rather than yeah. a corporate entity <laughs> if we did. <laughs> so we're limited by that as well. So, you know, inch wide, mile deep and the right professional skills complemented by the right technology skills in a nice pocket where we can clearly give an avatar showing what this person can do for a client makes it a bit of a tick list of how to buy from us. So it's just a, I think it's a, a just a clean, a clean approach to it, really. Would you say anything else? Yeah, I'd agree. I'd totally agree. I was going to ask about more generally consulting. We may come on to that, but your point there to run squads, just because I hadn't heard the term used, I'd love just if you could elaborate on, on what that means for you and for your clients and how being able to give them a squad is actually, you know, something they're really demanding at the moment. Well, if I just talk about it from a people perspective, maybe you talk about it from a client perspective yeah, yeah, because they're, yeah, they're, they're two different things. So, I mean, so you know, there are constraints to our model, and that is that some of the people we provide are pretty junior. So what a squad means to me is that you can have a range of experience within it and a range of skill sets that means that the onboarding process is easier. And secondly, that the delivery of outcomes is, whilst we're not taking full accountability for that, is a lot easier for the client to stomach because they don't have to worry about managing some junior people. So I think from my perspective, what a squad is, is just a the right shaped team with the right skill sets and, and, and range of skills in, in terms of time of skill sets that enables enables the work to get done to the client's, client's satisfaction, basically. And um, everyone's got a boss. 
<laughs> you know, it's either the bank, <laughs> if, if you own a company like it is for us some of the time, or, you know, it's a chairman or it, so, you know, we've all got bosses and these guys that we supply, they, they need a, they need a boss, they need to be developed. So it's just natural also to think about their employment with us and, and how that's important. So when we think about squads, we think about, you know, putting them people together and making sure they're being developed and also supporting them with these relationship managers that we have that I think are quite unique to us as a consulting firm in terms of worrying about their development. So I think it's just a holistic reason. But from a client's buying perspective, I think that's probably more specific. So when we we were listening to our clients, and quite rightly, as, as Tim said, we have some limitations, and that's a lot to do with, with the experience of our guys. And we realized that actually a lot of the clients were on a considerable data journey within their business and had considerable investment to spend to be able to get them to where they wanted to get to. And, and some of the things that we hear is is our clients might have a somewhat shorter term projects that have fixed deliverables that they want to achieve and that they want something um, slightly more flexible or actually, you know, they're stretched on management bandwidth. So managing a large volume of junior people, they might not be able to do. So I think with the squad with blended experience and a blended skill set, what that allows them to have is is some of the more experienced people within Kubrick. It allows them to give some leadership and technical direction so it doesn't have to weigh on their own management bandwidth. That really yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's always, when you say it out loud, it sounds obvious. But thank you for, for elaborating, chaps. And I, actually, I think Simon brings us nicely on to almost that sales side of the business and the client side, because obviously the growth you've achieved is fantastic. Going from a hundred consultants to almost 650 in what's that three years, you know, that, that takes not just a monumental sort of head office and people side, which I do want to come on to, but also simply a, a monumental sales side. And actually you mentioned that around being able to have these different pathways gave you a clean way to sell to clients and almost a productized offering. But Simon, I'd, I'd love to understand almost how that sales approach has grown over the last three years because we talk a lot and i think that's always something that stuck out for me in your business when i compare it with other consultancies that the focus and the effort you've put into formalizing that that sales structure yeah i mean i i think it's probably worth saying as well it's it touching again on what tim said earlier we have a really good purpose so we are we are solving a pretty monumental challenge that is not just within organizations but it's a society as a whole and i think when you have that purpose and you have a solution to help solve some of that challenge that we're going after, it does become a lot easier to sell. We have a a very high quality product offering to our clients. And I'm certainly not putting down, if if my client team are listening to this, I'm certainly not putting down. uh, It's all all you is what uh, I'm hearing. uh, You two two have created it. It's all Simon. (laughs) (laughs) It's... It's very much the product that we are offering. It's our consultants. And in that way, it's, I think that makes life a lot easier for us. So then it's, you know, we have a a lot of demand at the moment and it's being able to, I think, structure the focus of where to put that demand. So we're very selective about who we work with, which clients we work with. We have a structure on the team that um, structures clients in size. And also we're we're looking at also progressing that organizational structure soon as well to be able to get us to the next level of growth, effectively doubling the size of the business. But fundamentally, it is we have a lot of there's a huge amount of need for our guys, and that definitely helps our um, our sales process. Just being very humble. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a couple of things on what you've just said there, and and again, you know, in, in part, frankly, for myself, but for our listeners as well. I think firstly, your point about being selective on clients is really interesting because if you were sort of 
taking this back to basics and thinking, I want to grow a business. How do I do that? I need clients. And therefore, anyone I take, I'll let's work with because they'll they'll pay us money and that's good. Almost why are you there for selective on clients? And how do you have that conversation with a client? Because, you know, naively I'm sitting here and I'm assuming you, you, maybe you do, you don't interview them and say, you know, why should we work with you? No. But <laughs> how do you do that internally? Well, well, I think, I think it starts at the very beginning in terms of we know which clients we want to win and why we want to win them. But also I think the deal that we have with our employees and the model of Kubrick is really unique because we've got to ensure that a lot of our clients are taking on these people. I mean, it, it differs, but pre-COVID, I think it was, you were saying earlier, 80% of our guys turn permanent with our clients, probably 50-50 at the moment as people don't have permanent headcount, but that looks like it's it's changing again. So at the end of the two years, they're joining that client. So there is a two-way street on this. So we have to make sure that, you know, the tech stack is correct from the most simple, most base level. The tech stack matches up to what we're training. You know, the opportunities there, they're doing interesting things. It's a client that we want to be associated with. So I think it's quite simple. And a lot of it does start with how we target and who we target. So it's not having a chat with someone, kind of, <laughs> it's not me, it's you, kind of break up chat. <laughs> we do select Is it swipe, them. swipe left or swipe <laughs> yeah, right? I'm not that's sure. Right. We... we do select them at the beginning. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, we're predominantly outbound in terms of how we get, how we get work. And as we've matured... Now that we're, you know, we're such an old company, five years old in two days. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. I've lost my trust. You made me so emotional with your happy birthday, (laughs) Nick. I've lost my my train of thought. That's right. So, yes, we have had, from our clients, we've had some people move into organizations where I don't think we do fit them perfectly. So often a problem would be that a client is too small for us. And why why that's a problem is because they might not have the, the sort of technical oversight of the junior consultants that we supply. So that might be a problem that actually they just can't give the wrapper around our people that would enable them to be productive. So I'd say scale is often a a point, you know, where we, we don't work with them. And the other one I would say is that, you know, risk is really important. You know, so any, any of the guys that are listening to this that, you know, who are, who are involved in negotiating, they will know that when you set up a business, your risk barometer is is sort of wavering all over the place because you want to win clients, right? You've got to get the revenue coming through the door. You, you, you need to grow your business. So I think it's a natural evolution for any organization as it scales for that risk barometer to sort of stop flapping around like a windsock to start pointing in a very defined direction. So now we have a very, very strict framework that you know, our legal counsel is responsible for that we will only operate to. So we we do sometimes get to a little bit of a stalemate with some organizations around two key factors, which is unli- unlimited liability and where where delivery risk sits. You know, and I think that would be the same for any consulting firm. And, and um, you know, and, and, and we've just got tighter on that. But as Simon says, when, it, when push comes to shove, if you've got a good business proposition, you've got a good vehicle and you've got a, a good track record, then that affords you the opportunity <laughs> to be a little bit selective. Whereas I totally agree that if you're in a really, you know, if you're a consulting firm working with bricks and mortar retailers at the moment, yeah. you know, <laughs> you might be a little bit less selective. <laughs> but I'd stay away from Debenhams as a tip. It's <laughs> a good tip. <laughs> Thank you. This in part will touch 
on that, but I'll, I'll let the two of you answer it in the, the order you see fit of, you mentioned, some. I mean, you mentioned that you plan, you know, quite proactively the clients you want to win. And, and you know, Tim, you mentioned sort of largely you are outbound in your, your sort of sales. So you, you plan who you're going after and then you go after them. I'd love to understand how you do that to make sure they're the right clients for your business. And and the the link to your question just there, Tim, was actually that flapping barometer. When did you decide and how did you decide, actually, no, we can now grow up, take a more structured approach? What was it that gave you that confidence? What was that sort of trip switch, if you like? Well, a combination probably of three things. One was hiring a good finance director who didn't want his name associated to too much risk. <laughs> I think, you know, that's what happens, isn't it? You know, as yeah. entrepreneurs, you set up a business because you are not risk averse. So I, I do think as an organization becomes larger and scales and you bring in more people into your organization, you do have a sense of responsibility, which is I can't bet the kitchen sink on this because I've got the lives and, and employment of, you know, a load of people that I'm risking. Now, it's not just Simon and I and a few other people. So... So I think there is just one of maturity as an organization. Second thing I'd say is the minute you hire a lawyer <laughs> to work for you, then you, <laughs> you know, expect the workload to increase. <laughs> you know, and we did that. We hired someone and, we, and their first job was to put a framework, get us, the leadership team, comfortable with a framework that we could assess all of our contracts against. A framework, just because you've mentioned it a couple of times now, that means a legal framework to say we will agree to a certain amount of liability, a certain... For sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What are the commercial, you know, what are the commercial, I mean, it's most basic. What are the 10 most important commercial points? What are the 10 most important legal points? And in my experience, the lawyer will concentrate on the legal points. So liability and things like that. But there are lots of commercial points in there that you need to, depending on what you do, you need to, you need to worry about. And, and one of ours was we have one rate card and we don't deviate from that because our price point's good and we don't put our rates up very much annually and that was one of our commercial hard lines you know so you just need both of those lists and then i guess if you suddenly didn't win any clients after having that legal framework you probably got it too tight <laughs> and if it doesn't wipe any out you got it too loose yeah, so um right. that'd be my sort of more procedural tips and about yeah we definitely we were disciplined from the beginning on some of those as well weren't we and didn't deviate i think it's it's easy to loosen up on these things it's far harder than uh, to tighten up on that stuff I think that's a really useful summary for anyone thinking about that framework piece. And I, I like what you say as well. If, if, if everyone's saying, yes, you probably should be tightening that up and actually just staying alive to, to when it's too tight. But I guess to the other side of that, so Simon, you know, around the client planning and knowing the clients you want to win as a business, how do you do that? Is it an annual cycle? Is there sort of some, you know, marquee names that you're just, we know we want to have those. How, how do you approach that? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to um, probably point out as well that in terms of coverage of our current clients and the service that we have, we're, we're you know we're very very small in a in a number of our clients, so we've got a long way to um, grow within the organisations that we're in, and and we're seeing that currently. I think also being a data company, one of the benefits is that you can have a very data led approach um, to everything. I think. Tim, to copy your analogy the other day, it's, you know, if we're a dentist, we're not going to have bad teeth. So building a lot of these data tools that enable us to identify how we go forward with our clients is really important. So one of them is we understand the size of the market that we can go for. And within that market, we understand different sized organizations and what's the client journey? What's a typical client journey they fall? So when we're looking at planning out in the next three years and actually what size we want to get from the business, we understand what depth we can build in our current clients. We also understand what, what are the type of organizations 
that we want to go for in in different size buckets because i think it is important that you know we don't just go for large banks having a variety of industries because of the people that work for us also want to work for a variety of industries is important too and also it's it's quite a resilient approach from uh, when we had a business back in 2008 97% focused towards financial services probably has also taught us there's some benefits to having a balance of industries and then once we have those then we understand to get the growth how many clients we need to win and obviously the depth in current clients to enable um, that growth to happen. So we we approach it from that point of view first. Then we start identifying the actual names of companies within different industries that we feel are at a certain position in their data journey. You know, what are they doing? What's the news around them? And then we look at, you know, in an outbound way, how we approach them and, and we go through the cycle of being able to win them. And you mentioned there it's, it's data-led. And again, I, I'm going to get practical a few times in this. Actually, that, that point around getting that client list and the clients you want to work with. Is that a similar approach to what the two of you described with those um, sort of feedback sessions, those um, focus groups? Is it do some analysis on who's big in the pharma industry and then chunk down to how many you need to approach and go that way? Is it a day workshop? How do you actually practically do that? Well, I think what you said at the beginning, it's it's looking at the overall market, the size of um, clients in different industries and, and who are the ones that we feel that will be able to win and um, we'll be able to work with and they'll, they'll need our service. It's also a question of scale, isn't it, when you think about it? Because if you... So I'm um, non-exec to a, a, a business called Leading Edge, a profoundly good leadership <laughs> development organisation based, uh, based up in the Midlands. And, um, you know, they're, they're a small organisation of circa 35 people. And they have a mainstay group of clients that they do a phenomenal job for. And... We're often exploring the idea of how, how do we win new clients. Now, they're, they're not going to sit and spend days, or nor do they have the resources available to them to analyze the market and work out a lot, a lot of this stuff. So one of the questions I've often asked them, irritatingly, many times, I'm sure <laughs> he's found this, is that um, what are some of the moments in time that you might see a client buy from you? So what are some of the behaviors or things that you might see happening that would make a, an organization buy from you. So this is this doesn't apply to them, but you know it can be for some organizations that a new finance director is, is put in. You know What's the first thing that finance directors do? They tend to stop spending, review spending. You know, so if you're a procurement consultancy, I should imagine tracking when new finance directors start jobs is a great point in time to start communicating with a client. So, so I think the other thing is, is that we can target these organizations as much as we like, and we can s- segregate them into groups and say, that's just a lovely client to go and target. But, you know, the point at time at which you contact them and talk to them is so important because if you're three months either side of that pivotal moment, then you can you can miss it, really. So I think, you know, knowing when and why a client will buy from you is just absolutely critical. Yeah. It's a really, really good point. And again, I think one that many consulting firms lose sight of that point of getting to people at the right time and when they have that need, you know, and some of that to your point will be new people and you enroll, new promotion. Some of that will just be knowing the industry trends and how, how, what you sell you know, aligns to that. There's an interesting question within that though. And it comes to what Simon, you mentioned around actually currently Kubrick group are demand outstrips supply. How do you manage what you've just described Tim, in a world where you have that? Because if I'm a new FD enroll and, you know, let's say I want a whole number of data engineers, I've got a business I need to run. I've got a strategy. How do you actually, and maybe this is really practical and tell me if it's one to ask your team, 
how do you manage that so that you're not letting those clients just go? Or is that just something you have to be comfortable with? I think, first of all, we have very defined client portfolios within the team. So if you work on the um, client team, you have a set of clients and a client portfolio that you, that you can operate with. So we know how many clients we can work with and we know each individual on the client team, how many they can work with to give them the best possible service. I think also it's a constant battle that we battle with is demand and supply levers. And, and you know, there is, we spend a lot of time and, and thought around how we manage both supply and demand. You know, obviously if we, uh, if we, we hire like crazy without the right demand, you have a quite considerable bench, which I'm quite sure that um, a lot of consultancies uh, spend probably quite a bit of time discussing their bench. And equally, it's not good to have zero bench. So I think it's, it's, it's an approach of being able to forecast demand. So again, another tool. We do have a, <laughs> we do have a forecasting tool in the business that we're able to get a fairly accurate view at definitely out six months, perhaps nine months. And we've got quite a bit of lead in time in terms of it takes, you know, it's 15 weeks training for our guys. There's quite a bit of time to be able to um, hire those people. And that's, it's not simple hiring a cohort of 25 or 30 that there is, you have to go through a considerable amount of applications. So I think it's being able to look at our forecasting tools, being able to be very, very close to clients, set in the portfolios for the client team doing those focus groups and things like that because you do understand the demand coming out mm. and then being able to being able to call it in terms of what you're expecting coming in of, of a six month to nine month window yeah i would also add that there are distinct one of the things that simon's got with his client team is he's got he's got them structured around hunters versus farmers you know acquisition versus kind of client relationship and i think they are slightly different breeds of animal if, if i can use that analogy Probably not now. Very well. <laughs> Probably crucify me for using that one, but two different groups of people. Um, so Your poor client team. Right? <laughs> well, they say you hire in your own mould, so I use the term animals freely then. <laughs> wow. wow. Gosh, so, guys. We need a chaise long and some, uh, some counselling yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. I need a lot of counselling. <laughs> so... Um, so I think there are distinct differences in terms of their style. You know, when you've got a client onboarded, really the skill set you're looking for in the individual that manages that client is, is, is ultimately they, you need them to be a detective, not a salesperson, because really it's their ability to question. You know, because once you're building a relationship with an organization, really it's, you know, you need to understand where the pockets of demand might come from. You need to understand where they're going as much as they're prepared to tell you, depending on the stage of your relationship. You need to basically expand those relationships within an organization without, frankly, you know, annoying the hell out of them and burning their time up because they're busy people. So I think that's a very different skill set to the people that are helping you break into a new client for the very first time because I mean, they've got a really tough job, haven't they, really? You know, you, you say to one of these, you know, your new client we'd like you to go and win is X. And you think, God, I mean, that, that's tough because this client doesn't know you potentially. You know, they don't know what you do. They, they don't know your credentials. They don't even know they need you. So I, I think there is, a, there is a point around kind of a client journey in terms of when do you reply the, apply the right type of resources to that organization to get what you want and to give the client what they want as well because they do want different things along that you know as soon as you've won a client generally they want to deal with an account manager in my experience that you know is is going to get to know them a bit better and and and, and so on i want to come on to re recruitment and i was about to but actually what you've just said tim and 
I'm going to ask probably a big question and I'll let you to dissect it as you want is within that is implicit. And I think throughout the journey and the conversation we've had that you're very deliberate in the changes you make to your operating model, you know, to, to use the consulting language. So you, you build these structures in and I, I'd love to understand how you do it. You know, taking that point around, we structure our client team, hunters and farmers. Is it that you two have a monthly session where you you build the next operating model? Do you have advisors who tell you it's time to change? Do you just keep evolving? How do you approach this to to build those structures? Because it sounds very deliberate. That's good. It sounds deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deliberately telling you about what we've done. <laughs> I think, I'm going to ask well, what you haven't done as well yeah, in a minute. Yeah. But. Well, I think, you know, let's be frank, we've built a good team of people in the business. So, you know, I'm, Simon and I are no way involved in what the right structure is for, for you know, there's someone called Stella that works for us. She oversees a lot of the systems within the business, amongst other things. And she has built up a process for running projects in the business in an agile fashion with, with the right control mechanisms in them that enables us to make sure that we're not doing too many projects at once. And, you know, so, so there's a, and, and I think she's got it through a degree of learning and development because these are processes that other businesses have done before and kind of learning a little bit as, as she goes. So I'd say most of the business is, has a technical expert that is building the processes in that you're describing. It just so happens that Simon and I come from a background of sales, basically, and people. So we would be some way in part helping drive the changes and processes and structures in that. And then my only other point on it really is, is that I think it's a, you know, as you have other people in the leadership team, you're constantly doing this sort of circular activity, which is kind of like, this is where we're going. What are the two most important things we need to do to get there now? Don't worry about anything else. And then you review those two things. You're constantly kind of going through that cycle with people. And that does tend to drive quite a structured approach to improvement because people aren't trying to do too much at any one point in time. Is that would you? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Building on that point, and I entirely take the point around, you know, it's the team you're building almost... I'm interested because we talked in our last interview around you know, what have some of the blockers been that stopped you getting to where you got to as fast as you did. And I'd, I'd love to know almost what are the things that you've deliberately avoided doing over the last three years that have helped you with this growth? I suppose as entrepreneurs, one of the things is you look, you want shiny and new. So I think that especially when I can see it um, in other businesses when you maybe talk to founders and they're like, I've got this great idea. I'm going to go off and do this. And, and the question is, well, have, have you developed what you're selling? You know, your, your one, your focus at the moment seems like that's doing really well. And, and there is an opportunity cost where people are, I think, running off looking at shiny and new things. So I think one of the things that we've tried not to do uh, successfully, I would say, is is look at a shiny and new thing and, you know, and, and oh, this would be a good idea. Or, you know, one, one of the things that we get a lot from our clients is, oh, could you sell us your training and things like that. So the next thing we know, we'd be in a training company. There's all these different pools and you see in the market or you read the news or there's a new trend. And I think you've got to be disciplined and focus on continuously improving what you are providing. And especially if you know that you still have a long way to go in that market. And it, there is still great need. Why, you know, why diversify and push that resource and time elsewhere? Get really, really good at what you're doing. Yeah. Stick to your knitting. Stick to your knitting. <laughs> that is exactly right. There's always unintended consequences for everything you do. And, I mean, that must be one of the most favorite things that must irritate the people that work with us because we're always going, what are the unintended consequences of this? And it's, it is, you know, 
if you're a passionate individual within a business, you know, why think about the negative unintended consequences of your actions? It's just not in your nature to do so, is it? So it's a it's a learnt discipline that Simon and I have had <laughs> after working together for 23 very, very long years. <laughs> uh, that I think has stopped some of that sort of stuff. I think the only other one I would always mention is that when I think back to some of the companies that I've worked with before Cubic Group, when I was doing sort of advisory work, I would say that I saw two main trends in what they did. That I'd like to think we did relatively well at Cubic Group is, is one is, is, is what Simon's describing. They changed their course of action or don't hold themselves accountable for what they said they would do. So they're constantly letting themselves off the hook. It used to drive me insane going to these board meetings, these companies, and the board pack would look totally different to two months earlier. And you'd think, well, didn't we all agree two months that we were going to do something? They'd be like, no, no, not anymore. We're <laughs> like this now. You're like, well, you're only letting yourself off the hook, you know, you know. And then the second thing is this uh, kind of like silver bullet hiring approach where you hear the people go oh my god this guy's gonna be amazing they're brilliant i'm gonna hide my way out of this problem. yeah they're gonna be brilliant you know and and all that type of stuff and then you come back and you say you know how did x do or whatever and they say or they're always like oh yeah well you know it's this sort of hero to zero mentality about hiring people Weirdly, so that pedestal i put them on looks quite shaky now yeah, yeah that's right you know i can't tell you the number of times the, the hero to zero type mentality. And that ultimately, in my mind, boils down to how good is your recruitment. So we've still made you know, hires that haven't been the right job for them or the right person for us. But I'd like to think you've got to have everyone lined up going, hell yes, this is, an, this, well, this is a must hire. And if, you, if they're not a must hire, then they're not a must join from their perspective. You know, you, you've got a moral responsibility not to hire somebody that isn't exactly right for the job as well. It's not just about you. Because ultimately, if it doesn't pay off, that poor bugger is out of a job. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're the two things I, I used to, and this is driving me to insanity, which is why I no longer do advisory work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come on to, as I say, I promised recruitment, because I know, Simon, we speak a lot about my business and without going into detail, I know we've had conversations like that about candidates. And, and I think it's great advice because actually, if you're not super excited about someone, it's not going to work out in the long run. I just, I want to touch on that point around unintended consequences because I love it. And I think I'm sure that's helped you both. But actually, how do you do that? Is it simply one of you is that annoying person in the meeting? that's always saying, what's the unintended consequences, guys? Is it something you've built into like a, a checklist, a framework? How do you do it to make your you and your team always ask that question and not just go, that thing's shiny, let's go after it? I, I don't think it's any more complicated, if I'm entirely honest, than just asking the question in an irritating fashion at every opportunity. And, and also, I think it's stick. It, it's what you said in terms of that board pack example. I thought was quite interesting. You, you know, inspect what you expect. So you know, you should be reporting. So inspect what you expect. Yes, I like that's that. yeah. So you know, you, you should. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't intended to say it, so I do genuinely like it. Another... Thank, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Tim. Simon Walker, twenty twenty one. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Tim Smeaton lost to the advisory world. <laughs> um, so um, I think it's it's having things like the board pack or whatever and and consistently measuring the stuff that you're saying is important in the business because also that does get rid of a lot of the stuff that's shiny and new if you're disciplined and you're looking at you know one problem or one challenge or one bit of the business thoroughly and being disciplined and and holding yourself to account then i think i think that does get rid of a lot of the shiny and new running off 
Yeah, and all joking aside, you do need a mechanism to actually implement and find change within an organization. So if you're not regularly reporting on the same thing, you're not highlighting the consistency of a problem. So that, that's the, the other way of looking at it. So it's not about just not doing lots of new stuff. It's about finding a way to highlight where the problems are. And unless you are regularly reporting on KPIs or some metrics you're not actually building a heat map of where the problems are within your business. So, I mean, at its most simplistic level, it could be, you know, we're just not doing enough marketing events or something of that nature, you know, because we're not winning enough clients. So I think, I do, I do think it's really important that it's, you kind of like, it's funny, isn't it? When you run a business, you are kind of trying not to make change because with every change there's unintended consequences and you're trying to stick at it for long enough to spot the problems. But the minute you spot the problems, <laughs> You've got to suddenly make some changes. Yeah, so it's right. a bit of a duality that you're constantly having to to, to to put up with. And it's just rigor, isn't it? It's just, you've got to grind some of this stuff out, really. I want to turn to what I've promised now a couple of times, which is your recruitment. Because to all of the conversation we had around growing and, and the pipeline, there's a supply element to any consulting business. And, and given what, what you do here, you I think last time we spoke, you said you had something like 1% of all applicants. And I think it was last year as well, you had your 50,000th applicant, which is a crazy number of people to apply for anything. And I'd love to just get sort of your approach to how you've, again, since our last conversation, developed that recruitment process because the consulting market, the data market, our competitive fields, I'm sure, have only got more competitive. Actually, what have you had to do to continue to develop that process to get the quality and the volume of candidates you need through the door? Ultimately, we're hiring from three different pools, so they are slightly different. So we're, we're hiring graduates, we're hiring second jobbers. It's, a t- it's sort of an internal term, but you kind of get the, the gist of what we move with that. You know, so graduates, one to two years experience, and then we're hiring fully experienced people. So just excluding the sort of fully experienced people for the moment, we wanted to develop quite a formulaic approach to our recruitment. And the reason why we wanted to do that was to enable it to scale. So you, you, you're, you're constantly designing the funnel to make sure you can get enough people people through it. So, you know, at the moment we hire about 1.8% of the people that apply, about, this is 1.8%. <laughs> um, and, um, give or take. Give or take, <laughs> give or take a hundredth. And um, there's a big graduate population. And let's be honest, at the moment, if you're hiring graduates at the moment, it is, it is definitely easier because there are less people competing for that market. So what we haven't had to do is ratchet that 1.8% up yet. All we've had to do is put more people in the funnel. So that's been re- that's easier than changing the 1.8%. So the assessment tools that we've designed have stood the test of time. We've, we, we make changes as we see changes in people's performance and problems that we have. And we've, we've designed our own games that go into our assessment process. And we've built some really good IP there. But the question we're asking ourselves at the moment, because it is really pertinent, is what's going to happen in a year from now or two years from now when the graduate market, hiring market rebounds, which it will, because it is it is very volatile. Are we going to need to hire more than 1.8% of, of these people? And also, can we hire even more diverse people as we increase that? So, so we're thinking about other ways to hire, and those include actually offering some of our training on our platform that we're developing to people before they apply. And then we can see how people behave on that platform. Because we might have somebody that's done, you know, hasn't even done a degree yeah. for that matter. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps 
just made the wrong choice and did a degree type that they just don't want to move into a career that might utilize that or or something of that nature that probably will get turned down at the moment. So we want a blind application process ultimately and um, the ability to learn and to have the right attitude, aptitude and, and, and things like that. We think we might actually be able to find ways to test that as well and that will enable us to ratchet that 1.8% up. So we, again, we're taking quite a data-led approach to it. We monitor diversity where people come from and all things of all that nature and and there's still still lots we can do equally when you're hiring experienced people that is a very very different kettle of fish because the pools of people are just not there so we we have a team of recruit recruiters that sit in our business whose job it is is to go and build relationships with the type of people that we want to hire um, and that's an overhead that we carry because it's worth it to us because we're a, we're a fast fast growth business but yeah i mean our clients do say our special source is you do hire really good people and you you do make them really productive and, and comparable once they're onboarded to someone with two, two to three years experience in our business. And they do ask that. They, how do you do, you know, how do you do that? And maybe we take it for granted, granted a little bit because we've worked so hard at it for so many years, but that's what we do. Very good. And I, I'm interested, I think that point around 1.8 and the games and things, I'm also, I'm conscious we, we went into a lot of detail on, on what you did there. And you know, I was, re-listening to the story of your MI5 colleague who created the games, which I'm not going to ask you to give them away because I know you wouldn't last time. But I'm interested in that point around actually the, the experienced hires, because again, you mentioned that, and that's quite a tough market to hire into. Hiring an internal recruiter feels just, you know, on the face of it, like quite an overhead. You know, I've, I've got to pay them a salary, benefits. You know, I suspect they'll want something comparable to a sort of uh, agency fee. Why did you go down that route instead of just instructing, I don't know, five agencies and giving them a bit more commission? Well, economics. Okay. <laughs> so that's basically the reason. So we would have, you know, we wanted to drive down our recruitment fees, mm. basically. You know, it, a lot of the technical people we're hiring are on big, big salaries. And, you know, you're paying out. I mean, the good thing is Simon and I come from a recruitment background, so we're tough negotiators when it comes to what we're paying them as well. We know, so. we know their tricks. <laughs> <laughs> we know all their tricks. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we just reached a scale where we thought there's some pockets of roles in the business we know that we're just going to need lots more of for the foreseeable future. So do we want to spend £200,000 on recruitment fees for one of those pockets over the next year and a half? Or shall we hire someone to come in and build us a talent pipeline in that? in that market. And we've had mixed results, being really frank with you. Uh, in some technical disciplines, we've really, really, uh, our internal recruiters have done a really good job and hired us some really good people. But in a couple of others, they've struggled, so we've had to pay fees. So to hire really good people, you've got to be proactive. You've got to go and find them. You know, they're not going to come to us. You know, for the graduates, we run adverts. We just get hordes of people applying. If we ran an advert for one of our senior technical, we might, I mean, I don't know, we probably we might not even get any respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah. Quite literally, no applications. So, um, I mean, that's what it's all about, really. I mean, hiring good, set, you know, client account managers is that's, you know, they're like hen's teeth as well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of technical salespeople out there. That I think the thing that we struggle with is anyone that's in a form of transactional sales, selling a widget or you know, selling something that that sometimes doesn't really translate to us. Yeah, where you know the quality of their questioning often dictates the quality of them as a as a salesperson so we, we definitely you have to kiss a lot of frogs i think the term is <laughs> no. No. 
Is that why you're wearing green today, Sam? There we go, yeah. I'm wondering why you're looking the at me. The of the sales industry, they call him. <laughs> Gosh, for you, for you, Simon. Well, yeah, you know. Well, no, I probably won't open it up, but I think it's a really interesting point you make and actually ties back to that superstar piece that you, know, you touched on, Tim, because particularly in our industry, I've seen quite a few people hire heads of sales as the you know the rainmakers that haven't worked out and i i think to your point there sometimes that's because they come from widget sales which is very different from from what we do in consulting i want to turn to a third part of your business that's sort of intrigued me and this has been you know, great fun learning about yourselves over the you know the last three years but the, the culture of the business because culture is obviously a core part we just talked about recruitment and and you can't recruit good people if there's not a good culture for them to come into and you know with things like Glassdoor that's increasingly easy for candidates to see I'm fascinated how you build that culture in a business model that is predicated on people leaving because you know, a lot of if you sort of read management books they talk about cultures built over time and having people in the business your model is built on people leaving the business. So how have you squared that circle and, and built that culture? That is a tough part of our model. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, really, because as people are on site with, you know, one of our clients, in their mind, they're thinking about, well, in, in a year from now, you know, I've been here for a year working on this project. In a year from now, I'd quite like, you know, company X to offer me a permanent job. So they start sort of going native, for want of a better term, I think is a term I've heard used before. So what we've had to do is, and I still don't think we've got it totally right, is work out what the sort of give and get is between us and them that works for both of us and delivers value. And what is the sort of relationship they need to have with the client? So the development of these people is our responsibility until the day they're, well, even when they're part of our alumni, arguably, we've still got something to offer them. But the overall care and well-being of them as individuals and their security as employees is our responsibility. Being really clear on what other opportunities there are for their careers, even outside Kubrick Group, let alone in it, is our responsibility. So I think we know a lot better now what our job is and who hands out the tasks and who is the person that that individual needs to talk to about what. And we're, and we're a lot better at being clear about that. So I think our sort of internal uh, employee engagement scores for our consultants is, is pretty good, apart from in one area. And the area that we're still working on, most of all, is that if you said to somebody who joined our company, look, you're going to work for us for two years and four months, and then we, we'll allow you to join the client you're with. And during that time, we're going to train you for 15 weeks where you don't have to do any other work. You'll have no responsibilities that you've got to cover off in the evening with your employer. They'd bite your arm off, I, th I think, because no, I don't know many organizations that would give you that. But because our training is so front-loaded, it feels different to that. It feels like, my goodness, I'm having a really great time being developed for 15 weeks. And now I'm out on client site. Where's all my training gone? <laughs> yeah. So we score the lowest scores internally around that metric. I feel developed in my year one and two, which I think is a culmination of, do I really value as well as I could the experience I'm gaining? And do I see that as development? Which I think often when you're perhaps younger or an earlier stage of your career, you don't see that as development. When you're a bit older, you do, <laughs> being because I'm old. And then... Um, <laughs> You know, I think the other thing is, is that we're busy developing our own platform at the moment because there isn't very good training out there on the market. So we're, so what we've, we've, we're quite far along with now is having a platform where people can access all of the other training, all the material, all the videos, everything, and the sort of exams that we pose people for all of the other practices and pathways. And I think that's going to give 
a lot more training opportunity to the people that are on site. And for our clients, that's also going to give them a lot of opportunity because they're going to say, look, this guy that I brought from you as a data engineer, he's really cool. And actually, I'd like to see him morph more into a machine learning engineer. So that client can come to us and say, you know, I want the, the individual to go this way. The individual says, oh, I definitely want to go that way. And we'll actually have a platform where they can do that training. So we're, we're six months away from that still. But hopefully, I think that will make a big difference to the culture for those people. So we know they're joining us to leave us a lot of them. So it's, it, you know, that's constantly what we're trying to work at. And the way I'd liken the other people in the business is, is I think, again, putting my sort of reviewing hat on here, I think all the guys that work in what we call HQ, they're a bit like all the mechanics and stuff like that at McLaren, right? And all the consultants are like the racing drivers. And the people in HQ, they're running around to make sure that the, the racing drivers have got the best car and the best opportunities. So I think sometimes we actually forget a little bit about how great the culture is for HQ and, and how we need to develop those people in HQ. And I, I do actually think we've been a bit, bit light on that, which is why we hired a new head of uh, HR director a matter of months ago, because we thought we, better, we should be developing our HQ people just as much as we're developing all these people. Because yeah. we're so myopic about making it amazing for these grads coming in. I think we've been a bit light touch on the other thing. Yeah. That's my honest appraisal of kind of where we're culturally. And I think for the senior people that work for us in HQ, they enjoy it because we're very clear on what goals they, that they've got and we allow them to work out how they're going to do it. And we give them plenty of space and plenty of responsibility. And our attrition has been incredibly, incredibly low. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Sorry, it's it was a bit of a diatribe, wasn't it? No, no, three minutes there. <laughs> I like the uh, McLaren analogy. Yeah. I've, I've become a, I don't know if you watched it on Netflix, the Drive to Survive, I think it's Drive to oh, Survive, yeah. the F1 series, but I, I never watched F1 until that series. Big fan now. And so, yeah. It's true, isn't it? It's, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, now. it's a great yeah. series. I, yeah. It's Mercedes, but yeah, one day if I can be like Toto Wolf, that's the, that's the goal. I need to do you a bit more gym. You have a passing resembling. resemblance to him, actually. Well, it's, the shoulders are drastically smaller. Um, arms are drastically smaller, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Brown hair and earphones is about all I've got in, yeah. in, in relation yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Naturally. <laughs> We talked a lot today, chaps, about you, about your business model, and obviously it's it's worked really well for you. And I just, I guess, one last question before we go on to another topic I'm fascinated to find out about is you've talked about the focus groups you run, and actually that you're hearing live from clients what they want, you know, in the data space. But I'm sure actually for you know, consulting at large, and for for those listening to this, I'd just love to get your take. You know, what are you hearing from your clients? Where is our industry going? Where do you think that next disruption is going to come from in consulting? Well, for me, I think I think there's a, I think there's a couple of things really, which is for consulting firms to ultimately be successful. A lot of the time, it's down to having repeatable processes and frameworks that they need to undertake. So, I sense that these have been things that consulting firms have sort of kept to themselves, and and they've always alluded to the fact that they might let you look in their tools locker, or or something of this nature. So, um, I suspect that you're going to see further productization of the consulting marketplace, which is not just in the, the way you supply your services necessarily, but is also in, in terms of maybe giving some of these tools or giving some of these processes in a digital fashion to your clients. So at its most basic, it's been around, you know, agile frameworks and ways of working and, and actually giving the client that framework with which to run their projects. But I could definitely see ways in which organizations could find different ways to share the knowledge with clients that might give them a competitive advantage for the future. So at its most simple, which is really pertinent because we just met them this morning, we met one consulting firm that works with retail organizations. But what they also do is that they 
have employed a team of people that are looking globally at and finding all the technology startups that are disrupting the retail industry. And what all they're doing is, is basically built a platform, put all of those firms on it, and are tracking their performance. Now, if I'm, you know, John Lewis or Primark or whoever that is, that's really interesting information for me. And if I'm seeing that from this organization, well, I know who I'm going to call first when it comes to the transformation or the strategy for that transformation. It's that firm that's given me some, you know, Nibble of knowledge. What's the term there? That's a new one. Wow. <laughs> nibble of knowledge. Yeah. Nibble of knowledge. You've got to have knowledge. a nibble of knowledge in the morning. I, I, think, I think we need yeah. to, I think I, I need to rename this podcast or the two of you need to start one. The, yeah. the nibble of knowledge <laughs> with Tim Smeaton by the fireside. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so yes, you need, but that, the, the point is, right, is that, that what they're doing is they're giving the client something that is helping them, meaning that when they pick up the phone for the first time, that's who they're going to call. And the big four are, are, are particularly good at this. You know, the minute COVID happened, KPMG, for one example, they built this COVID dial-in every week at Wednesday. They provided all sorts of information. And, and maybe they've got the resources to do it. But even if you're a small consulting firm, as long as you're niche, there must be something that you could give in a, you know, that, that stretches just beyond a framework that enables the client's to be more successful than they are. And, and I, I would say I'd see that dig, that becoming much more digital, like a platform and things of that nature in the future. That would be what I think. Yeah, and I think some of the, probably slightly more obviously is, is as you're seeing huge disruptions in people's operating models as a business, as you're seeing new technology come in, I think you are seeing the larger consulting companies as well buy up those smaller consulting businesses to be able to, bring in that technology and bring in that IP. There's definitely a lot of value around new technology coming out and how they can access that. So, you, you know, especially last year, it was one of the busiest years, even though it was COVID, of seeing consultancies, smaller consultancies being bought by larger consultancies. So I, I, I can't see how that trend is going to do anything but continue. I think some really interesting points there both. And, you know, that, that point around platforms and giving away some of your wares, I mean, it, what we do, you know, create, engage, and a shameless plug. You know, that's the number one thing we tell our clients is actually you've got to be giving some of that away. So, like you said, Tim, you're, you're front and center when people come to look. Because if you're not, and particularly, you know, with with digital platforms and and you know social media where it is that information is readily available, if you're not at front of someone's mind, they're going to forget you. You know, and I'm, I'll always remember an example from a, a former colleague who was actually really good friends with the client, but because they hadn't spoken for, you know, three months, four months, which is perfectly normal, you know, you get busy, they missed out on a piece of work when actually, yeah, if you've got that platform, you can be, you know, really front and center. I want to then turn chaps, and I think anyone listening to this knows that you two have a great relationship and you've obviously built some successful businesses together. And I really want to turn to that relationship because this is your second business together. It's also, this business is bigger than the last one. And I guess I'll, I'll start to, and maybe, I don't know how, you know, I don't know if you've ever talked about your relationship. It sounds very deep, doesn't it? But Every day. Every day. <laughs> after a nibble of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can give me a nibble of knowledge on this one. Is How do you make that work? Because I... Tolerant. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe deep, yeah. Deep tolerant. I'll, I'll let you take it. So, you know, how, how over those years have you evolved your relationship to be able to work together like that? Well, I... In all seriousness, I think that it's a clear definition of roles, responsibilities and duties. So I've always been responsible for clients, you know, the commercial aspects of the business. And 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 Tim has been more in a traditional CEO capacity. And I think we very rarely 
kind of creep into each other's responsibilities, really. Um, and that, and that's you know it's worked. That sounds. Oh, sorry, go on, Tim. Were you gonna? No, I was no. gonna say that definitely works for me. <laughs> and it, when you when works you, for our clients as well. Just just works. There you go. <laughs> uh, that's the first episode of the Nibble of Knowledge. Thank you for for joining. Uh, that does sound simple, but. You know, I, I speak for myself, you know, I've, I've had a, sh- a short flip with, you know, a business that I launched with someone else. And, and actually, when I think about others who have done it, there's a lot of times that that relationship fails because you may have those delineations, you know, I'll do finance, you do operations, but personality traits creep in, you know, disagreements, feeling is the other one pulling their weight. Mm. And now look, I appreciate mm. you're not a two man startup, you're a 650 person business, but how have you got comfortable with that so that you, you know, you have that such implicit trust that you're like, look, Tim's doing his thing, Simon's doing his thing, we're good. How have you built that? Go, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not built fully yet. <laughs> I wouldn't do one of those lean backwards and the other person will catch you. <laughs> You'd hear a loud thud on the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, um, it, it, I think in all honesty, we are pretty lucky because as you can probably tell, we both think we're the funniest people in the world each. <laughs> so humour definitely plays a very large role in our relationship. I, d- I don't know. I think you've got to have a bit of a shared vision in terms of what it is you want to build, really, and not be hung up on the commercial goals, should we say. that you, you know, If you set up a business thinking, I want to make a, load of, a shared load of cash, and that is just why you're doing it, you know, you're not really bought into the business, let alone any form of business partnership. So we definitely like the journey. We have similar personality traits that mean we like the fun of setting up a business, I think, if I'm really honest. So that's been good. I think when we were both at Hydrogen Group, you know, we we had more testing conversations there because the business at times was more difficult to run. You know, as Simon alluded to earlier, in in 2008, the GFC came along and, you know, it was, that was really tough. And, you know, Simon made the decision to move to Singapore. That can't have been easy for him. It's definitely easy for me to have a bit of peace and quiet once he left. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I think we, yeah, we do have a lot of, we do have a lot of shared experiences and we seem to have built up a little bit of a reputation with everybody as uh, kind of like we sort of come as a pair, really. And, you know, even when we do awards and stuff, I think the other thing is you leave the ego at the door. Mm. I, I genuinely say, if you know, we don't seek the limelight individually. And, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's an equitable relationship, basically, and not too hung up on on beating our chests about anything or yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, we're very quick to um, give each other some feedback on... On whether we whether we do think each other's stepping out of line or beating the chest, or actually just Tim's very good at giving feedback, just to make sure that I don't feel too <laughs> egotistical. It's very useful. Uh, I've, got, I've got that sense from today's conversation alone, chaps. Um, maybe then to that point around sort of how you got through the GFC, because obviously you know when things are going well, it's quite easy for relationships to go well. It's when things are, are tested that you know relationships come come under strain and. As much as you're happy to to share, it, I guess, how did you get through? You know, that time was it just frank conversations? Was there anything that you remember thinking? Actually, you know, this is what kept us together, running this business through that time. I mean, what made it hard? I'll be again. I, I think what made it hard for me, anyway, was not my relationship with Simon because there were other people involved. It was a big company then. You know, was being a public company. So, so I was CEO there, and and you know, you have to basically say what you're going to do for the next year ahead, at least. 
And when you're running a a large financial services orientated organization with the GFC, it's rather hard to give those expectations. So um, what I found difficult was balancing what I knew inside me was the right way to behave as a leader with pleasing the markets. That then translated to some, some you know, ugly decision making that when I look back at it, I wish I hadn't made, being totally frank. You know, so I think what was testing really was you know, if I if I had my time again, I would have you know I would have I would have backed the business a little bit more and not listened to the equity analysts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think for me personally, it was very testing because I I felt I had you know I was stuck between a rock and a hard place, and that probably translated to an experience for Simon amongst other people as you know just being a bit of a tosser and making some pretty difficult decisions, frankly, and not and not talking to me about them very much. So it wasn't my finest hour that period. But, you know, you've got to have tough times in your career, and this is not just about responsibilities. You've got to have those times where you stuff it up. Yeah. Because if you don't feel any pain, you'll never improve. Yeah. So, I, you know, so I look back at that time, and, and, you know, it was really, really tough. And I think just lucky that my relationships with most people were still all right after it. Really, yeah. Because I have to you, make some decisions. you still got your two friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you didn't lose any mates during that, which is good. Well, the second one's not here today, so well, what, no, what's right. happened since? Well, no, they're still, they're still on talking terms. <laughs> well, and maybe a, a, a sort of extension of that one. I think, you know, you mentioned, obviously, Hydrogen was a public company and that has its own pressures. And and this may, I may have this frame wrong, so stop me, is, you know, Hydrogen, I think when we last spoke, you said you grew to about 200. Kubrick, you've grown to 650 people. They're very different businesses, but on crude numbers terms, it's, it's triple the size of people. What have the two of you had to either change or evolve in your leadership styles to respond to and continue to manage that growth of the business? You're looking at me for this one. Well, I think you've <laughs> developed extremely well, Simon. <laughs> I would say that actually COVID's done a lot of this as well, trusting in people, being able to set out a vision being clear on that vision that, and people understanding the role that they play within that vision and trusting them that they can do it. You've hired some really smart people that know how to get to that goal and letting them do that. That's the fun of, fun of the role. When I look back at probably, um, well, I suppose back in 2008 and things like that, you um, I think probably I was quite directive and got into telling people how to do something. I was an expert and everything. And I think you know, that's moved to being in Kubrick where there's a, I think there's a high degree of trust really that we hire really, really good people. We've got a good vision. We've got a good purpose of the business and they play their role within that. And they, you know, they, they're responsible for that, for that delivery. Very good chaps. Nice succinct answer. And I think I'll leave that one there. So I, we're actually coming to the end of our time together, guys. And thank you very much for round two. It's been, uh, it's been emotional. It's yeah, been, very yeah. emotional. It's been a, an enjoyable sequel. Hopefully this will help you win as many awards as the the last one did or didn't. I think it probably will. Well, I think the podcast of the year. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah, certainly yeah. some sound bites, and if not, a spin-off series of the, well, the nibble lots of, of lots of nibbles of knowledge. The nibble of knowledge, <laughs> chaps. I think there's certainly a spin-off here. Well, um, as you know from the last one, there's certain wrap-up questions I like to ask all my guests, and I've I've deliberately changed them slightly because you're round two. So the first one, and we we talked before about books in the last interview, and also Hello Magazine. I, I seem to remember as well. And I'll start with this question of, since we last spoke, you know, what is the book or Hello Magazine, or, or I think Tim, you mentioned YouTube, you know, what's the thing that you found yourself going back to or recommending to others most often? Do you want to go? To, I mean, I've read a really interesting book recently that knowing when your business partner is going to lie about what they've read, <laughs> which is a fascinating book. 
<laughs> and when you've caught them Google searching just before the podcast, something like that. Um, Can I ask, though, in all seriousness, you know when you read in the Sunday Times magazine, that when they do an interview with anyone or another magazine or do a podcast, they always go, what book are you reading at the moment? How many people actually believe that's the truth? Because they always write a book down, don't they? That's something really deep and powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Riders um, by Jilly Cooper. Well, that's, that's a good book. <laughs> well, that's in part why I deliberately asked the question is, what have, what does, have you or... Does Blinkist count? Uh, forgive me, I feel, is that... That's I feel very old. That's an app. You oh, kind I, of the, the, I, I feel it's shameful It's the modern-day let's study guide of books. We read that, don't we? Yeah. Oh. I, th- I mean... <laughs> you sounded really convincing there. So. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, th- I, I mean, I definitely am from the school of the internet, and I can read sort of two pages of a book and then profess to know everything that's in it, which Simon will <laughs> tell you. So I am... I think cause I'm a very visual person. I love a good model. You know, I love... Um, a picture. A picture. <laughs> says a thousand words. <laughs> no, I like it. I like a good model. So I'm always thinking about what are the things that, you know, I've learned before at Hydrogen Group in the form of models that enable people to, to relate to them. So, you know, just the other day, talking about situational leadership with some guys here that was something that we had some training on, God, 15, 15 years ago. So I, I kind of subscribe to that type of stuff. And then, you know, I get the news from the internet. <laughs> we did all recently you know, read, actually, the leadership team did read Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah, that's, and that's some really, really good models in that. And we use those across the business. That's the best book. It's so simple, isn't it? Get the right people on the bus, you know, and and and, and stuff like that. This I think, is Marketing by Seth Godin, uh, given to me by Nick Sinner. Yeah. I hear, that? I hear that's a no, good book. No, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> None of my papers are flying off my desk at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, so that's why you hired us to come and tell you how to do it. It's, I'm still waiting for our testimonial. I mean, you can you can say what you thought of it here if you want. No, I think. I mean, I, I don't think either of us are sort of. I'm not. A, I'm not a massive book reader. No. Maybe then I'll ask to to your point because it's it's no judgment on whether you read or don't read books. Is you know, what. What you mentioned there, that model, are there any models that you found yourself turning to, you know, let's take the last year, two years, you know, anything that you keep going back to? Yeah. I, I think we mentioned it in the last podcast, actually, which was the the Simon Sinek why, but also DILT's logical levels, which is a kind of similar similar model that gets you to focus on, you know, your purpose, identity as a business, your beliefs. Um, and not focusing on things that I think a lot of people focus on. And it, and, and you can relate it to actually running a client-facing team as well. And, you know, if a client-facing team isn't performing, I think a lot of people jump in and suddenly go, oh, I need to move the desks where they're sitting. You know, very environmental. I need to address their behavior. I need to train them a bit more. But actually, it's about aligning everyone to a purpose and and being able to define what you're identity is and actually having beliefs that you know this model or what you're doing will actually work i found that particularly useful recently fantastic well thank you very much for that both and and last question and i've sort of tweaked this and you can tell me i'll let you take it in the the best structure for you but normally as you probably remember i ask about different levels in consulting and i think something that stuck with me from our our first conversation that you mentioned is actually you know you you're very active in seeking advice, hiring the right advisors. And I'm sure, you know, you've, you've had a lot of advice and had a lot of mentors on the journey. And I'd love to just get almost, if this is the right way to cut it, the one piece of advice that's really had an impact at the different levels of the business. So say when you were 100 people and you're three and now you're six, 
what are the bit of advice that's really stuck with you at each of those levels? I can't remember exactly when they came in, but I've definitely got a couple of pertinent ones. So, um, so it's, it's, it's what you don't do that counts, I think is absolutely bang on the money. So you, it's working out what you're not going to do just during your, during the day, you know, I'm sure you've do what's important, not what's urgent. I think you can apply that message right down to yourself on a daily basis, or you can apply it to an organization. And I, I really, that's always stuck with me. I think, I mean, we joke about Simon's inspect what you expect, but that is always stuck with me as well. You know, the minute you measure something, it goes up in my experience generally, or hopefully, but you know, there's no management without measurements, another way of saying it, but it's, it's, that's really, really stuck with me. And then probably something about purpose. And and when you, when you put people into a job, I, I can't remember anyone specifically telling me this, but it's a sort of common theme, you know, give people the room to do it. And just make sure they know why they're there, what it is that they're there to do, and then give them a bit of room to work out how they're going to do it. You know, check back with them regularly so you make sure they're not struggling or going off piste or whatever you want to want to say. But if you're bothering to pay someone a lot of money, then give them the courtesy of expecting a lot from them, you know. And that's really stuck with me as well. You know, get, get yourself out of it a little bit. Yeah. Get yourself out of the cornflakes. That's what someone once said to me. I can't, I don't, it's a bit of an analogy, but I don't even eat cornflakes. <laughs> but uh, Nibble on knowledge. That's right. <laughs> Nibble on your cornflakes. <laughs> get out of them. How about you, Simon? Anything that sticks with you sort of on top of those? Yeah, I, I, well, I suppose it, it follows on from something that Tim said as well, is often some people's greatest development points is actually when they fail. So I think it's all too easy being a leader to dive in and, and rescue people. And I think um, that's not always the best thing to do. And it's something I've definitely found really hard to gauge. But, you know, sometimes you've got to let someone have a little bit of failure because it will be such a valuable learning point for them and not rushing in and rescuing them from that and you'll you'll probably get a far better colleague or employee fr- from that yeah. brilliant i'll give you one more actually because i just thought about it the other day i watched a really awesome here we go this is the book question for you i watched a really awesome documentary about warren buffett okay yeah and he's really good so basically he only ever invests in companies that have got big towers and so he's really interested in the tower and how strong it is the business model but what interests him most is how how big is the moat around it so how oh, sorry, tower is a metaphor. We're not just saying no, was not, high, not, not high rise. Okay, no, sorry. No, no, yes, it's a metaphor. It's a, <laughs> go with me on this one. It's going to take you on a journey. Yeah. So you know, the tower as a metaphor is the organisation, <laughs> and how strong it is is how well it's performing and how quickly it's growing and so on. And the moat is how defendable is its position. So you know, Kubrick, the Kubrick Tower is a good tower, and our moat is that you know the ip around hiring the ip around developing people and the working capital requirement it would take to set up as a competitor of kubrick group so warren if you're listening (laughs) we are awaiting we're awaiting the check well i think that is probably a great place for us to finish chap so thank you very much for this i've thoroughly enjoyed round two um hopefully you have as well last thing then if anyone wants to find out more about you you know if they've gone through episode one they've got your contact details but if they want to find out about working with you, they want to find out about working at Kubrick, where should they go and look? Who should they get in touch with? Well, probably our website, kubrickgroup.com would be a, a good place. And you can see also what we're up to on any of the social media channels. So LinkedIn, especially, but Instagram, Twitter. Fantastic. Yep. Well, chaps. Get in touch. 
thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. much. Thank you. Cheers, chaps. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.